please. We are heading, Mark. We're going to the 16th chapter. And I am starting. Now, most of you will know, and if you don't know, it doesn't matter, that Mark's ending is kind of peculiar. It's uh, the second of the four Jesus stories, but it kind of ends. It just ends. Uh, most theologians will say that it actually ends historically with the, with the original texts at verse 8. That's what we're going to focus in on. However, verses 9 through to 20 were added, it seems, at a later date. Now, they're beautiful verses, and I've taught from them and will again in the future. But I'm going to focus in on these eight verses. I'm simply going to identify the progression of three ideas through the text, and then we're going to land our time with some prayer and some baritos. How does that sound? All right, chapter 16 and verse 1. I'm sure you've noticed by now we do have a screen, and the words are there. They just can't be seen. But... If a thought counts, this is one of our thoughts that count. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. The context is clear. Jesus has died on the cross. Uh, brutally, and then he is placed in a tomb wrapped in spices, and um, a massive stone is rolled in front of it, certainly that no three ladies could push over. No three men could. It took a real bunch of bevy types to get out there and push it out the way. Very early on the first day of the week, the Sunday, just after sunrise, they went on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. And they saw and they said nothing to anyone. Well, not at that moment. I think they were bewildered and terrified because they were afraid. Now, why did it suddenly end there? Well, we speculate, don't we? We think, well, it could have been that the rest was lost. That's possible. If you think of how things were recorded and handed down, it's highly possible that a chunk of it was lost. Or, secondly, um, it was just unfinished. Mark just never finished it. A bit like I'm told by those of you Game of Thrones followers, that everyone's totally passionate for Jackson to finish it, and he's doing all sorts of projects which drives all of you major followers crazy. Um, I'm not really a follower, so I'm still sane. But for some, he's in his 70s and they are desperate to finish whatever he's supposed to finish. It could be that he just didn't finish it. Thirdly, it could be intentional. What if there's a kind of a pregnant pause at the end of the book? What if a little bit like, you know what, I don't think the story's finished. We are all still busy writing the end of the book. That's possible. N.T. Wright, the great British theologian, teacher, Bishop of Durham, now lecturer at St. Andrews, I think, said this book is the parallel of the first exodus. And Tyler's done a fabulous job is keeping our feet to the flame of this being the second exodus. As happened the first time around with the people of Israel enslaved 
enslaved in Egypt, Moses, their redeemer, comes and brings them out to a land of promise and the first covenant. N.T. Wright says this, This is the fulfillment of the Exodus, that the Exodus said through the prophets and the Psalms. The Messiah was going to do things in a whole new way. You know what? We're at a disadvantage. Jewish kids would have in the day studied the Torah and those who were in school with the rabbi would have learned most of it off by heart. So they would have known the promises of the Messiah. They would have known the promises of things to come. And now they're faced with, is this it? Is this what was supposed to be? We don't have that. We don't have the deep historical understanding of the early texts. And so that makes it a little difficult for us. But N.T. Wright continues, the Messiah was going to do these things in a whole new way. Now, quite simply, the first three verses deal with what I think to be the truth of the moment. I'll explain in a moment. The second three verses deal with the transcendence of the moment, the eternal breaking in on the temple. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. And if I have a, one prayer, and I have many, but if I have a prayer, it would be those of you who've never experienced God in a moment, in an encounter, in a whisper, in a touch, God would meet with you today. You know, one of the advantages of having walked with the Lord for 45 years is the number of times God has met with me personally in a tangible, measurable way. How many times God's met with Meryl or my kids or the churches we've led? And my exhortation to you is reposition your heart. Say, well, God, what about me? I'm diligent. I hang around. I was raised in a Christian. But actually, I've never had you touch me in a transcendent, eternal way. And then lastly, the transformation, the outworking, all of which comes about through the resurrection. So let's talk about truth here. Did the resurrection really happen? Now time does not allow me to go into an extended argument here, but let me give you some interesting pieces of information. Let's look at it again. When the, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the one that Jesus cast the demons out of, Mary, mother of Jesus, and Salome. So there are three known women. The community knew them. Jerusalem was not a massive city like L.A. It was a place where people knew people. So if you have any doubt, Mark makes no... Uh, he doesn't hide it. This isn't a mystery. There was no one there. It was like it was brillich and a slithy toad, a girl and gimbal in the wave. All mimsy with a man. You know, it wasn't like... Hmm. It wasn't like mythology. It wasn't like some ancient English writing. It was, no, no, there's Salome and there's Mary. Remember Mary? Yeah, yeah no, not that Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Oh, that one. yeah, of course we know her. Well, well, she was there. You can ask her if you want. And remember Mary Magdalene? Maybe the one who was pretty prostitute-ish. Well, she was there too. And Salome... Remember Salome? Well, see, they were there and it was the Sabbath. See, there's historical sequence to it. There's personalities. There's historicity to it. It's giving us some tools to know. This isn't a time where we have to guess. Did it really? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. The Jesus, the Jesus Project took months of academics to get together and research the resurrection and their conclusion very publicly was absolutely no the resurrection did not happen and then to confirm it they brought a witness who works in a morgue well i can tell you that dead people normally don't rise you know i i, I, I can tell you that 
This is not that. In fact, what's even more curious about this passage is that God chooses three women. Now you say, well, what's strange about that, says the feminist in you, rising to bite my head off. Well, let's give it some context. Celsus, the second century Greek philosopher, said this. He was a critic of Christianity. He said, how can anyone expect a rational man to listen to the testimony of an hysterical female? A Greek philosopher who hated Christianity. Of course, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Everyone knows a testimony of an hysterical female cannot be trusted. Furthermore, she's neither rich nor of royal rank. No one who's rational would let three women testify to something as ridiculous as that. John Paul Sartre, the philosopher, existential philosopher, said if there's no God, life is absurd. If there is no resurrection, ladies and gentlemen, as we will see in just a moment, we are of all the most to be pitied. Chuck Colson, how many of you know, I'm interested, how many of you know who Chuck Colson is? Just out of interest? All right, one, two, three, four, five, okay. So, how many of you have heard of Richard Nixon? Okay. So, Richard Nixon's demise was the Watergate scandal in which, basically, as I understand it, some of his guys broke into the Democrats' offices and did some really bad stuff. Now, Chuck Colson was the hitman. He was the... Uh, the guy, maybe the Roger Stone is to Trump, the guy who ended up in prison. He was the guy who did a lot of really dicey stuff. A lawyer who worked the system to keep Nixon in power. Interestingly enough, he said this in his biography called, autobiography called Born Again. He said, I found it so interesting as a lawyer and politician how easy it is to overwhelm religious leaders by taking them on the presidential yacht, whining and dining them, they will say anything you want them to say. Doesn't that sound a tad familiar? I don't know what I'm talking about, but you know what I'm trying to say. Now, Chuck Colson came to faith. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How, you may ask, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. All that they had to say is, Jesus did not rise from the dead, and they were free, and they would not have died. That's all. One sentence. Guaranteed life. So if it was a lie, they must have believed in it incredibly strongly to be prepared to give their life up for it. He goes on to say, Watergate, the scandal, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. Nixon, Colson, and the rest of the, the, the men who ran the nation at that time. And he said they could not keep a lie for three weeks. And you are telling me 12 apostles can keep a lie for 40 years. Absolutely not. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you don't mind. I want to just quickly skedaddle through this. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. But it gives us biblical framing for priority. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, because you have, uh, otherwise you would have believed in vain. Here it comes. Listen to this beautiful passage of Scripture. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Ladies and gentlemen, the resurrection is of first importance. It is the most important piece of our biblical theology. It is the cornerstone, as we'll see in just a moment. Of first importance, what is? That Christ, not any other guru, religious man, philosopher, thought provider, but Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Why is that important? Because the Jews needed to know that what they had read about in the Torah, in the Psalms, in the Prophets, was coming about in the man Jesus. I'm sorry this is a little bit kind of slow and sluggish, but it is so important for us to grasp this. It's of priority, it's Christological, it's biblical, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all he appealed to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, isn't that phenomenal? I know I read it quickly, but these, dear friends, are eyewitness accounts. These are men and real men and women who died believing this. I mean, honestly, let's just be honest for a moment. If somehow, per chance, someone comes and puts a gun to your head and says, Do you believe the resurrection? Would you say, Pull the trigger? Or would you say, Nah, I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm not really sure about this Jesus stuff. Well, your honesty is commendworthy. But you see, for me, it's, as a historian, it's profoundly compelling. There's more evidence that Jesus lived and rose from the dead than many other, a major historical figure on which the lightest historical data is taken as fact. But if Jesus was not raised from the dead, Paul says, our preaching is useless. C.S. Lewis, and we all know that well, said, if we only have two options, there's no third option. Jesus is either he's who he said he was, or he's completely a nutcase, as intelligent as someone who says they're a fried egg. But there's no alternative. There's no third option that he was a great moral man, a man of good moral standing, a man of integrity, someone worth listening to. Jesus never gave us that as a third option. I'll read a Tim Keller quote and then I'll do the other two really quickly. Tim Keller said this, uh, author, pastor, New York, great man of God, Love him and his work enormously. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's truth. Secondly, transcendence. 
This is a particular sweet moment. This is a moment in which heaven breaks in on earth. This is a moment that makes very little intellectual sense. If you try to reason your faith through, through, and I have a thinking man's faith, but this is beyond that. This is where the eternal breaks into the temporal. This is where the impossible becomes probable. This is where God, who is divine, breaks into our broken human world and gives life as a picture of what will happen. One day, you and I will be whole. Okay, can you think about that for a moment? In my darkest days, when I went through what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, it never meant as much to me as those years. Uh, 2014, 15, no, 2012, 13, 14, somewhere around there. And, and I longed for it. I said, Lord Jesus, I long for the day when I'm not broken anymore. I, I'm lo I long for the day where my weaknesses don't overwhelm me and my limitations don't shout at me. Where my sins don't glare at me. I long for the day when this Chris is truly the best Chris ever. Because I have become like Him in a twinkling of an eye when I am gathered to be with Him and the angels gathered together from the four corners of the globe, those who are called to Him. And in that moment we become like Him. And that's why there will be no more tears. I had a bad day on Monday. I just said to Meryl, I'm an optimist and I'm positive. And, but, but Monday caught me, broadsided me, took me down at the knees like a great tackle. And I struggled. I tried to get myself up. I watched a mongoose attack a Cape Cobra this afternoon. This little bitty thing with this 10-foot Cape Cobra. It was amazing. He just went in, attack after attack after attack. And eventually the cobra's head was going down. It was so exhausted. And then it came in and it grabbed this, this, this hood and just shook it. And don't you feel that way sometimes? You just feel shaken. You just feel like someone's got hold of you and everything that's weak about you, faltering about you, your sin that you just can't beat, that you just shaken. And I love this piece because the supernatural mystery of the resurrection breaks into my life and into yours. And in that moment, we will be like Him. As St. John, one of the great mystics said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, how where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. What great poetry, what great artistry. Christ is risen and the demons have fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ has risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To Him be glory and dominion unto the ages of ages. Isn't that exquisite? See, not only is the resurrection true, but the resurrection is transcendence where the eternal breaks into the temporal. You become a participant. Genty Wright says we're invited into the supernatural life where we become a participant with God in the eternal things. People say to me, Chris, when, is, when are the end times? Are these the end times? Of course they are. Hebrews says, in these last days. Last days started 2,000 years ago. We're in them. But the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me. I have the eternal resurrected Spirit 
the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me and I, as the invitation is, is to live that supernatural life. Okay, lastly, it's true, it's transcendent, and it's transformational. Now, I was going to read a whole bunch of scriptures, but I'm going to tell you the story instead because I can see you hungry. As I've mulled over this passage all week, I have been so intrigued by our limited understanding, including mine, of the resurrection. I thought, wow, is it really the ultimate thing? Do I really see it that way? And uh, I'm not a, I don't follow John Piper a lot, but I just thought, let me see what he said. And it was a very sublime little passage in a sermon he gave. And this is the gist of it. Remember, the third, message, the third component is transformation. He tells the story in Acts chapter 6 where Paul and Barnabas are walking and ministering and this little girl, demonized girl, is continuously cussing them out. Well, she's kind of, no, not cussing them out, you know, exaggerating and, and saying dramatic things. And in frustration they turn and they rebuke the demon inside of her. Well, the, her owners freak out and they get Paul and Silas in prison. Now listen to this. It says this, Having been stripped, beaten with rods, and severely flogged, in chains, in prison, at midnight, they were singing hymns. Now, think about that for a moment. Use your imagination just for a moment. They have been stripped, so they're naked. Well, that's pretty embarrassing, wouldn't you say? They've been beaten with rods. Have any of you ever been spanked out of interest? Have you ever been spanked? Okay. At school, we could, we'd, we, when, when we got, got into trouble, we'd walk into the principal's office and he would close the door and in the corner was uh, kind of a stand with about 12 different bamboo rods there. And you choose which one you want. And he'll say, Mr. Vinant, would you like the thin one or would you like the thick one today? Oh, sir, it's very kind of you to let me choose. I think I'll take the medium-sized one. Very nice, Mr. Vinant. Would you please bend down? And then he'd whip my booty. I know that's strange for some of you. That was just part of the game. If you get in trouble, you get whipped. That's how we do it. That's, you accepted that. But, but that isn't what happened. They were beaten with rods. They were severely flogged. They were chained. They were in prison. And it was midnight. And what the hell were they doing? They were singing hymns loudly. And Piper makes this point I would not have done that, he said. I would have groaned and moaned. Why me, Lord? Why am I in trouble? Why am I in prison? Why am I away from my family? Why am I cold? Why am I hungry? And I listened to him and I thought, John, I actually think I would have been the same. Feeling the injustice of it. And then he goes on to say, from the chapter before, Acts 17, 18, Paul was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And he says this, it is the resurrection and the revelation of the resurrection that make us hymn singers. It is the knowledge that we don't live for life down here. Our reach is not for happiness down here. Dreams being fulfilled down here. Our reach is for an eternal dwelling and partnership with our God because that's where our hope lies. Transformation. Where Christianity is no longer upholding morality, but a miracle that we live out. Thank you for letting me 
rant and rave a little bit. I have loved studying this this week. I have loved growing in my passion that if I don't have this, I have very little else. It's true. It's transcendent. And it's transformational. Now I land with this. Right in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15, yes. I read the first portion quickly. We skedaddled our way through it. It's priority, it's biblical, it's Christological, all that stuff. And at the end of it, there's this beautiful description of the resurrection and its ongoing work. And in the middle is this beautiful little verse. By the grace of God, I am who I am. Here's my invitation to you. As Christians, our quest is not to find ourselves. Well, I want to find myself. I want to, I want to find my identity. I, I, me do me, you do you. That's not what we do. As we tuck ourselves into the shadow of the resurrection, as the Spirit of Je- that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me, there is this inner peace that comes. I am who I am. What was the hymn Paul sang? It wasn't a psalm, because in Colossians and Ephesians it speaks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It wasn't a psalm. Someone had written a song, and in that song they found solace and hope in that prison that night. I am who I am by the grace of God. That, dear friend, is what the resurrection does for us. It earths me. It lets me become quietly at rest and at peace with who I am and with whom I am not. It allows me to live in a supernatural world, inviting the eternal dwelling of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done, like heaven, like earth. Come and dwell amongst us now. Would you close your eyes with me, if you don't mind? Yeah, Ty, can you come up and give me a hand? The resurrection is true. The resurrection is transcendent. It's the world of mystery and miracle. And the resurrection is transformational. I'm going to ask you to open your hands. And I want you to invite the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead into that area of your life with which you are most at war right now. Holy Spirit, would you come upon this beautiful, beautiful little family of ours? Would you handpick the words or stories or scriptures that we've used tonight to quicken our hearts? We bring to you this area of brokenness with which we are waging war. We're saying, would you, Spirit of the living God, that breathed into the lungs of the dead Jesus, would you breathe that into our exhausted lungs? Where we're tired of fighting, tired of doing battle with these areas of our lives, but that you would transform us 
Would you sit in that posture as Tyler just sings a song over us? If you want someone to pray, you can ask someone next to you. That would be super fun. But let Tyler sing just one song over us.